um, you discover weird things like 9,000 years ago, we we have discovered wine jars from 9,000 years ago. Was it 9,000? Was it? I think it's closer to four to five. Oh, I thought it was closer to eight or nine. Mesopot- we'll have to look it up. Mesopotamian- the Mesopotamian wine jugs. That's about 5,000. I thought it was earlier. That was part of why it was such a big deal. The pyramids are three or 5,000 years ago. It's contemporaneous with the pyramids. Okay. Um, all right. Then I stand corrected on the... Look that up. <laughs> look that... Not necessarily now, but I mean, before we do the show, I'd... I'd I, I know we, we read an article about it and there was some mention in the lectures that we were watching, but... Um, with vintage markings on it. What vineyard did they come from? Uh, what grapes varietals were used in the wine? Who grew it? What quality it was supposed to be? I I could have sworn that was somewhere around 6,000 BC is what they dated those, those wine jugs to. Just a moment. Obnoxiously pedantic as I'm being this morning. It goes back at least 8,000 years. All right, so that's about 6,000 BC. Okay, but we were actually looking for, like, wine labels, right? I think so, yeah. It wasn't really a label. I mean, they marked the the, the ceramic pots that the wine was kept in. Yeah, we've got China from 7,000 B.C., Georgia from 6,000 B.C., Iran from 5,000 B.C., Sicily from 4,000 B.C. Um, so, yeah, 6,000 B.C. is about 8,000 years ago. Georgia is in the far north of what we would call Mesopotamia. History of wine bottles. Winery dates back to 4100 BC, discovered in 2007. Uh, Large earthenware containers used for storing wine, covered with beeswax, possibly in use as early as 6000 BC. Okay. Okay. All right. So there we go. With with that that oh-so-critical piece of information secured for the benefit of our listeners. Welcome to the Play Ed Podcast, where we explore cultivating connections through play. Hello and welcome to the Play Ed Podcast. I'm your host, Laura. And I'm Chris. And we are here today to explore cultivating connections through play. Before we get started on today's topic, I wanted to remind everyone that if you're listening to us through Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. Uh, It does help new listeners find us more easily. And uh, while you're at it, if you're listening to us at all, please share our next episode with your friends. It helps us to grow our audience and it helps uh, show everyone else what we're doing. Share with your enemies too, you know, find common ground or just irritate them further. (laughs) All right. So we decided to do something a little bit different today. We're going to go ahead and do a deep dive into a particular board game. And we started with one that was near and dear to your heart. Yes. So once upon a time, um, an awkward, slightly overweight, geeky young boy ended up in a very, very special school uh, where things were done very, very differently than in most normal schools. It was a very experimental sort of place. Um, and one of the things we did, um, in addition to you know studying things like ancient Greece and ancient Rome, 
um, and the Middle Ages and reading things like the Iliad and the Canterbury Tales, um, we played a lot of board games. Uh, and that was part of the class day and part of the school week and part of the curriculum. It was a very, very small group of people. I was uh, 11. It was middle school. Um, and the story of how I got there is is its own somewhat enjoyable tale uh, that I occasionally bore people with at parties. But the take-home there is while I was at this school... I was introduced to a game called Civilization, which was produced, uh, what, originally in the UK? Yes, it was... In the early 80s? Mm Mm-hmm. It was a board game uh, that was originally published in the UK in 1980, and it came to the US in 1981. Um, In the US, it was published by Avalon Hill, and that was the version that you had. Right. Um, So Avalon Hill... Is, was a venerable publisher of fairly intense uh, uh, games. They had some popular games in their bookcase games line, um, but most of their properties were, were fairly intense war games of one kind or another. Well, they got the license to publish Civilization, uh, and then they followed it up a couple of years later with an expansion called Advanced Civilization. Um, if you've played the Sid Meier's video games, which came out at the very tail end of the 80s, there's a lot of conceptual overlap, but the actual play is very different. There was a computer version of this game that I'm talking about that also released at about the same time that, that I think it was Microprose published the first Sid Meier's Civilization game. But the, what, while, while... I don't know the extent to which Sid Meier's inspiration for the video game was was stimulated by this this Avalon Hill published Civilization game. They play out very differently, and we're going to focus on the board game today. Mm-hmm. So, in the back of one of the classrooms was a table that was perennially set up in a corner, and this map of the it was a it was a stylized map of the Mediterranean was laid out on it, and it was covered with these little cardboard squares and circles. Mm-hmm. And I I started in the school um, uh, basically after Christmas break that year, uh, in the spring term, and some of my new classmates were, they we, we, we got to playing chess at lunch and hanging out and doing classes and stuff, but I noticed that some of them would kind of drift back there. And there was this fascinating board with all these weird pieces. And I was like, what is this? And they're like, oh, it's Civ. I'm like, Civ? What What? what are, what are you talking about? Like, Civilization. It's a board game. I'm like, well, I can see that it's a board game, but what's it about? It's like, well, you, you try and build an empire and develop your civilization in the ancient world. And we were reading about things like Bronze Age Mycenaean Greeks and the Trojan War and... Um, the, the, the rise of the Greek city-states and then Alexander, that, that was very contextual for what we were working with. Um, and a lot of these, these kids who played around this board game, we had discovered, you know, one, like I said, we played chess at lunch, but we'd also discovered we had a love of things like Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games. So I was already kind of simpatico with this group of, we'd probably just we were we were all nerds. It, it it's just there's no point in trying to hide the fact we were all really 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 geeky nerdy. Yeah, I mean one guy wore a pocket protector, 
Um, and he was the one doing calculus in like seventh or eighth grade with us. So I, 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 anyway, um, civilization, right. I need to stay on topic. Sorry. Stay on topic. Stay on topic. Um, (laughs) too tight. Pull out. Um, so anyway, there's this stylized map of the Mediterranean world and this geography that I'm becoming familiar with. And there are all these little chits the these little cardboard playing pieces and they invited me to play and one what we did is that we would play a game out over the course of a week or two because one of the things is that Civ plays best when you've got six or seven players it accommodates two to seven players there's some variant rules within it um, for stripped-down versions of the game, which I tend to use a lot with my younger kids because there's a lot of moving pieces. Uh, and I'll kind of get into that in a, in a, in a moment. But um, with Civ, um, the gameplay can take a long time. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think that the, the, the minimum for a, a decent-length game is like 8 to 10 hours it aver- in my play experience, it's averaged 20 to 30 hours per game. So that's an important part, starting point to consider that this is not a quick game. This is not something you pull out on a Saturday afternoon when you're exhausted from church, sit down, put the board up in 10 minutes, play for an hour or two, have a good time, and then, you know, pack it up. This is a commitment. This is a relationship of a game. Mm-hmm. Um, and like some games like Diplomacy, which I also love, it's got a strong element of interpersonal relationships that have to be developed and cultivated. So to keep us a little more focused, why don't we start with actual gameplay? What is, what is the gameplay like? How do you play it? And then we can go get into a little bit more further sort of what you get from the game. So you have a board map, um, or map board uh, divided into territories. Um, and it's mostly the ancient Mediterranean and the Near East. So, um, you've got, uh, the Iberian Peninsula with Spain and what we would now call Portugal. You've got North, the North African coastline. Um, you've got, uh, Egypt and the Levant, and you've got the Mesopotamian, uh, area in the Arabian Peninsula. Moving up North, you've got kind of the Southern, um, uh, shore of the Caspian Sea, moving back west, you've got um, Armenia, and then the Black Sea area, you've got you get about the Balkans, and then uh, across through what we would call Germany, France, and the very southern um, heel of like Britain, uh, England, and Cornwall, mm-hmm. um, and a little bit of Wales. Um, and they're divided into territories, little, not, not, most of them aren't square shaped, but they're little squares on the board. Uh, each player, two to seven players, each player has a set of chits, uh, cardboard pieces, um, with a population icon, um, and a city icon. And the art for the icons is drawn from the art of the civilization each color coded group of chits represents. So you've got two to seven teams. Each team is playing a different civilization yes. that is starting in one area of the board and then growing outward. Now, the civilizations aren't differentiated in the sense of each civ has a different power or ability. Okay. They're all functionally the same. And the gameplay is the same for each player regardless of what civ you pick. Okay. 
where the challenge is is that you're trying to you're trying to do the same sort of things expand your population found cities grow um while sometimes fighting and sometimes collaborating with your neighbors um so there are a series of phases within each game turn and they're done in a certain sequence and there's a tracking chart that's separate from the game board it's like a second game board piece and on that tracking chart you have all of the civilizations that are in play and a timeline that um that's where you start seeing differentiation between certain civilizations because while the criteria for moving from say the stone age to the bronze age or the bronze age to the iron age um are the criteria for advancement are the same where in the timeline you have to have your prerequisites in place to make that advancement does differ by civilization okay but you don't have a civilizational advantage or personality or leader types like you do in some other ancient civilization type board games yes yeah, so some of the computer iterations are able to bring in that that level of sophistication because you've got background algorithms that can do a lot of that work for you right and what's distinctive about this game um, I think is that it's one of the first ones to bring in a technology tree and that a lot of the game builds around that idea of you're not just growing a population your civilization as it grows has to learn things so that it can continue to grow in advance right and so that's where the game starts getting interesting if it's just population growth expansion build cities that can be a fairly boring game yeah um, you might as well play risk Although that's one of the stripped down variants that I start with the kids on. Because I can get a four or a five year old able to understand a geometric progression of a population just by how many chits they have to put down in their territory. Now, as you get enough population to found cities, the cities allow you to collect trade good cards. Okay. And once at least two players have at least three cards each, they can begin trading. And that's where this game starts to look like diplomacy more than any game most people have ever played. Um, I'm not... I, I want to do a whole episode on diplomacy. And we certainly will. But it's interpersonal negotiation. There are no real game rules that restrict what can be said or done within the interpersonal negotiation other than the trade has to be three cards. Mm-hmm. You have to exchange three cards for three cards with another player. You can deceive the other player. Not all of the trade goods are good trade goods. Some of them are calamities. Some of those calamities can't be traded, in which case your civilization suffers it as a consequence of engaging in trade. Other calamities can be passed on to your neighbor in a trade as if they were a trade good. So you can damage another civilization. There are conflict rules, but it's very hard to get a military victory. You can't build an army and conquer your neighbors in this game. Mm -hmm. uh, and it largely, the timeline ends right about the time of the conquests of Alexander, but it's not trying to recreate the ancient world. It's simply giving you an opportunity to experiment with some of the drivers like population and food and that tension um, neighbors and trade goods and the consequences of trade, including things like plague, civil disorder, iconoclasm, and heresy. Um, 
Anyway, as you accumulate trade goods, the reason you're trying to accumulate the trade goods and trading with your neighbor is so that you can use those trade goods, which increase their value the more you have the same kind. Okay. So as you accumulate all of the iron in play or all of the grain or oil or spices in play, you those increase in value but it's not a linear increase uh, it's not quite a geometric increase but it's it's they, they increase in value the more you have the same kind of a set okay with the consequence being that at one of the phases in the game you can trade those in if they have sufficient value to buy civilization advances technologies that give your civilization an advantage so you get pottery and that allows you to reserve some of your grain trade cards against famine okay. if you don't trade them away. Or um, metalworking allows you to compel whoever you're competing with in a given territory for um, uh, population control. Um, the, the, your opponent has to remove their pieces first. Okay. It's, it's, it, it gives you a military advantage. Okay. Um, road building increases movement. Uh, astronomy allows you wider navigation options. And then these civilization cards, these technologies, are color-coded into five groups depending on their sphere. There's mathematics, engineering, um, fine arts like music and drama. There's, um, there's crafts, arts, sciences, civics, and religion. And they're color-coded. And each of those civ advances that you've bought has um, has a point value, uh, roughly equivalent to what you pay in trade good value to get it. Okay. Those are how you accumulate victory points along with the population and the cities that you have to maintain in a relative equilibrium against various disasters like civil war or earthquakes and volcanoes or the predations of your neighbors. So you're trying to keep this balanced population, enough people in the hinterland to create enough resources to support your cities so that your cities don't starve. You're trying to negotiate with your uh, with people at the game table in, in real life, in meat space, if you will. Mm -hmm. You're actually talking with these people about these trade goods and where's the border going to be and um and and then some people will violate that they'll they'll trade you a bad card they'll deceive you they'll they'll betray you or you may elect to betray someone else because that that prize is just so close you can taste it um and you have to deal with that on a personal level it's not something adjudicated by the game but all of that is to get enough resources to buy the civilization advances, which give you the victory points, which then determine who wins the game. Okay. So looking at the game, there's an awful lot of moving parts. So this is not one to dive into without preparation. Absolutely. I, I couldn't play it with my kids, my young kids, if I hadn't been playing it since I was 11 years old. That's over 30 years now. So if, so, so if this is a game that you're either getting back into or brand have, new or brand new, the starting place would probably be to look for, there's a lot of, this is a very old game, obviously. 
Um, yeah, the copies I own, I bought on eBay a few years ago. I waded into the collector's market, found the, the, the rattiest copies I could find that were within my price range. And still complete. But st- relatively complete. Yeah. Um, uh, I got the stuff I wanted. Um, one of the sets was missing a couple of critical components. I found a supplier online who does reprints of certain game parts, but he does not sell the whole game. It's a, basically a, a replacement pieces. So I did, Yeah, you can Google Civilization replacement parts or replacement pieces. So I did a bit of research and I discovered oh. that while the Avalon Hill imprint is obviously long gone. Yeah, that's owned by Hasbro now, That is I now believe. owned by Hasbro. The game is imprint in Europe um, by Gibson's Games and you can actually find new copies. Um, there was a French language version a few years ago that was also available. I don't know if that one's still in print, but if for some reason you want to add an additional complication of playing this game in French, that might be an option. Or if you happen to already be a French speaker by any chance. Well, you know, I mean... <laughs> it does happen. I never could parley vous <laughs> Anyhow, um, there are recent print copies that you can obtain so you don't necessarily have to wade into the collector's market to get a a a more recent print version and it's a little cheaper to do it that way but you can probably find online and i will hunt for and attach links to any instructional videos that go through gameplay but this is definitely one where you're going to want to spend time working your way through the book itself um, from the rules of play before you want to engage in play yourself. And it's best to start with some of those introductory stripped back layers of the game. Uh, look for the simplified variants that are provided because it is going to be before you ever dive in with kids with this game, you're going to want to make sure that you understand all of those moving parts. The game thankfully makes it fairly helpful in that it provides you, again, helpful trackers so that, yes, there's a lot of moving parts, but the ability to see them is made very highly visual. Yeah, I mean the last time the last time I was able to get a full group of adults to play was right after college. A few of us were moving on to grad school. A bunch of us were living together one summer, uh, right after college. It was right before you and I got married, mm-hmm. and um. We got everybody together and we played for a whole weekend. Mm -hmm. Like we started on a Friday afternoon and we played through until like a Sunday night late. Um, We had guys who had to go to work, so they would just kind of duck out for their shift. And then when they came back, they'd jump right back in and we had proxies handle it. And this was before everybody texted everybody. So it was like you left a set of written instructions with your buddy to play your 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 position and hope he did a good job with it kind mm-hmm. of a thing. Um, but it was a lot of fun. But that was like that was really the last time I was able to get seven people together to play this game. And we played for three days and we didn't actually finish. We didn't actually get to the end. Um, boy, we had a lot of takeout that weekend. Wow. Thinking back to it, that was, and it was a lot of fun. Um, but I mean, this this game really can be a huge time suck. So if you're looking to invest the time and master it, or at least get familiar with it, and if you want to share this with your kids, let me recommend the following. One, 
Go ahead and get familiar with it, but also recognize that in the rules, or I'm sure you can find versions of the rulebook online that have it, there are simplified games. There's one that's like seafarers and traders, and there's another one that's like farmers and settlers or something like that. And it's it's just discrete aspects of the game, and that's all you play. So farmers and tr- farmers and settlers or whatever it is is a is a Stripped down variant where you're just handling the population growth piece. Mm-hmm. Population growth, census, and building cities. Can you get a handle on that? Seafarer and Traders introduces some trade goods. It introduces how do you build and maintain ships, how do you transport population, that kind of thing. And playing those makes a lot of sense from trying to learn aspects of the game because what you're doing is balancing all of these different things and trying to learn all of them at once, particularly if you have younger players, is going to be very stressful. Yeah, I was eleven, and I was around eleven or twelve when I learned to play this. Um, for most of the folks I've known, it would be hard to teach the full game out the gate to a child younger than I would think thirteen or fourteen. Okay. Um, you could do it with a younger kid. Um, I, I'm, I suspect our 12-year-old could probably handle it. Yes, yes, but that's something you as a parent are going to have to play by ear. How, when your when you're 12 or 13-year-old or 10 or 11-year-old gets overwhelmed by too many inputs, do they shut down? Do they get angry? Do they give up? When you, what happens as they approach that point of frustration? Mm-hmm. Um, and as we talked about in an earlier episode, when you hit that point of frustration, all learning shuts down. And that's a biochemical response that, that a person can't control. Yeah. So anyway, what I was saying is play the simpler variants. Get familiar with the different steps of the game, the different aspects of play before you try and throw them all in. And the other thing is do what we did in middle school. Do what we did when I learned to play. Mm-hmm. You don't try and get everybody to play a game in one sitting. We played maybe an hour, roughly a turn, an hour to an hour and a half, two hours, was one turn, give or take, and we would play one a day after the school day ended, and then we'd go home. Mm-hmm. And we'd come back, and maybe the next day we were all too busy after school. On Friday afternoons... We'd play a couple of turns, or if we were having a sleepover at somebody's house, we may play three or four turns because a couple of my classmates, their parents were our teachers. So we could stick around the school building playing this game until they had to lock up and go home. At which point we'd go, we'd have dinner, pizza, hot dogs, whatever, and then we'd um, we'd spend all night playing Dungeons and Dragons and and hanging out that way. Um, but w- what I'm saying is play the game out over time. And that's part of how I learned it. And that's part of why it wasn't so overwhelming. Yes, I had all the moving parts of population and cities and the trade goods and the negotiation and the civilization advances and trying to accumulate points. But I was only trying to do like one set of tasks in an hour, an hour and a half. And then I had a day or two to think about what I had done and study the board position and we could talk about it. And it was in the conversations that I learned from my 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 classmates who were playing, I, I came to understand the dynamic of the game. So stretch it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we did with Dominant Species a few weeks ago where we kept the board up in a corner of the house. Not that we have any spare corners. Um, it's a little cramped. 
Um, but we kept the board up for a week and we played out just, you know, okay, we'll do another turn after dinner tonight. We'll do another turn after dinner tonight. Oh, we got swim lessons, so we won't be doing a turn tonight. Um, you know, that kind of thing. So take it slow, be patient. Um, and really you could teach the fundamentals of this game to a child as young as five or six. Um, and with adult help, they could probably play effectively, all the aspects of the game until you get to, um, you know, the 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 mental math to to buy the civilization stuff. And little kids will have some trouble with negotiation just because they're, they're just cards on the table kind of people. That's where they are. Mm -hmm. um, there are certain there are certain aspects of the game that you really can't teach because it's it's a it's a developmental stage and um, a mental capacity point that a five or six year old or an eight year old won't have hit. Mm -hmm. But short of that, you can do a whole lot. Mm -hmm. So to dive into sort of the why do you want to invest this much time in this game? What are the? It's a really good question. It, it is a great question, and obviously for you, there's there's the nostalgia factor. But why did your school have this board game? hanging out in the back of the room. It helped make the abstract concrete. Okay. It's one thing to read a textbook or a secondary source um, or, you know, even a primary source, although we weren't reading primary sources. None of us had enough Latin or Greek at 11 or 12 to read primaries, true primary sources. Um, but we were reading a lot of secondary sources. We were reading translations. We were reading archaeological stuff um, in excerpt. And we were watching videos. We, we were focused on studying this historical period of the Bronze Age and the Iron Age um, at an age-appropriate level um, in the Mediterranean. And there was a focus on kind of what kind of culture emerged and what the game allowed our, uh, the, the faculty at the school to do is without consuming their time as teachers, we could we were reviewing material we had studied. Mm -hmm. And we were reinforcing points that were being made in our texts and things we were discovering in our conversations. Those were being reinforced by experience. By which I mean, once you have tried to build an army in Mesopotamia as Babylon or Assyria and sweep down onto the plain of the Levant and try and conquer it because it's filled with rich cities and you want those for your own, you discover why the Levant, uh, Israel, Palestine, Syria, Lebanon, why this little spot of geography has been so hotly contested for the last 5,000 years, mm -hmm. 7,000 7, years at least. Yes. Uh, essentially, we, we could self-teach along with all of the interpersonal skills that were being developed by spending time playing this game. So if you're asking what does the game teach just by its own thing and this is one of our principles is let just play the game the game teaches and you don't have to do a whole lot of layering on top it creates things like explains far better than frequently you could the effect of those resources 
on the civilization's growth and why certain areas are hotly contested and why certain passages become important for defense or attack. Right. As we were discovering this year, we were studying ancient Greece. And once you realize that the Greek mainland can't actually support sufficient grain growth to, to feed its population, the need to have passages open to the uh, to the Black Sea or Egypt or Sicily, because all of those are places where they do get grain. Now you say, oh, so that's why they needed to control this territory. That's why they needed to have colonies here. That's why it mattered whether or not they were in at war with Persia if Egypt was under the control of Persia. Right. That those things affect the flow of essential. Um, goods and services goods and services and the game teaches that in a way that becomes much more intuitive you start to look at that map and say okay i see that that makes sense right and and instead of being a great mystery why did these these wars of conquest happen why did these um population growth why did the population growth happen here and not here right that makes a lot more sense um it's a strategy game, and so there's things that strategy games, games involving strategy and tactics teach, that's also something that the game teaches by its very nature, and that's things like, again, cause and effect. Cause and effect, um, how to balance scarce resources. Um, you can try and pursue a kind of military build-up, but it doesn't work very well. Mm -hmm. uh, the game is well-designed enough that... You can play militaristically, aggressively, attempt to conquer and seize territory, but it's very hard to hold it. And one of the consequences for losing a battle ends up being your city starve. Yeah. And so it becomes very important. A lot of younger players, and we've observed this with all of our children. All of them without exception. That when they're very young, um, and there's, there's, a, there's a turning point where you can see it click. But they initially will have sort of one-track minds with play. They'll get set on one strategy. They're, there's the one thing they're going to try to do to win the game. And it takes a while. And, it's and it doesn't necessarily align with what the game is looking for in terms of victory conditions. But that they'll, they'll settle on the one thing that they feel that they want to do. And then they'll put all of their effort into doing that one thing. Well-balanced strategy games teach you through experience that you have to do more than one thing. Yes. And so over time, you'll see that moment when it clicks for them. It's like, oh, I can't just build the longest road. I can't just get the most cities. You realize I have to be building cities and growing population and expanding territory, but I also have this tech tree and I have to be acquiring more trade goods. I have to be advancing my civilization right. through these advancements and that all of those are pieces that are in play. And that teaches you to do things like planning yes, and looking at where you're at and where the other players are at and having to make choices about if I do this thing, if I put this, if I am doing this trade, send this, pop, this other population, I may have a temporary advantage, but what's that going to do for the relationship with that player? Right. And so the other thing is that, as you pointed out, there's that mm. element of diplomacy of the trades where you have to work with negotiation and interpersonal relationships 
And that's an opportunity to look at things like saying, am I only trying to do something for my own advantage? Right. Or do I work to find something that's mutually beneficial so that the likelihood that I'm going to have everyone on my back two turns later is lower? You know, I, thinking back, I remember when I first thought I understood the game, I came out of the gate one one time and I had a good starting position and I built up a military and I pursued a military development path and I tried to conquer my neighbors and I got eliminated very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's a lesson I haven't forgotten. That's one of the benefits of having a game do the teaching. It's not a lecture that can be forgotten. It's not a book you can mislay or misremember. It's an experiential lesson that has the cost of some cardboard and time that you don't forget. I learned how to balance guns versus butter, so to speak, playing Civ at 11 or 12 or 13 in a middle school classroom. And you learn that resources are scarce. And when resources are scarce, it means that you have to balance all of the different things that you can do. Civ's really good at teaching delayed gratification. Mm-hmm. I know there's been some studies about gratification delay. You were talking about some new research or some follow-up research in some of those classic studies the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, Civ's really good about that because the nature of accumulating enough trade goods to buy the civilization advances you need. And the fact that some of those advantages, those advances have prerequisites. Like you can't get, um, is it democracy? It's like law or democracy. Oh, um, so some of the advances like democracy and philosophy require you to have the law advance. So you have to get the prerequisites for law. Mm Mm-hmm. Before, and then you have to have law before you can acquire philosophy and democracy. And so the whole nature of the tech tree means that you've got that uh, element of both planning and delayed gratification, where you have to have a much longer range vision of where you're trying to go. Right. And then you have to work backwards and say, okay, if I want to get to here... What are the steps that I need to have in place to get there? And that's a very long range vision. And... It's much easier for a younger player just starting out to get be very short focus, short-term focused. But the longer you play the game and the more you play it and balance those elements, you're learning those things like, what is my ultimate goal? How do I work towards that? Mm-hmm. And you have to choose those things that you want based on the accumulation of victory points. Right. And the accumulation of victory points comes from different areas. And so you have to understand, learn those drivers. And to win the game requires... Not something as simple as world conquest. It's much more complex than saying, what are the factors that give the victory points that lead you to that high, to that high score? Right. And then there are, there's also a balance in the Civ cards, for example. Like there are not, some technologies, there are never enough cards, as many cards as there are players. Mm -hmm. So if you're first past the post getting one of those, you've got it. If you for whatever reason, don't get that one early enough, you may miss it. Okay. Um, and anyway, I mean, we could we could go into a lot more detail. As I said, the, 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 the game has layers and layers and layers 
Um, but the other thing I wanted to, to say is that with that long range planning emphasis, you absolutely learn delayed gratification and understanding how to devise a strategy and then adapt it situationally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Um, but it's, it's definitely a commitment to learn. Um, but that single-minded focus that I'm all over the place here, um, that single-minded focus that you mentioned in younger kids, some of the simplified scenarios work really well with that Mm -hmm. because the scenarios have a simplified focus so you can learn an aspect of the game. And so that makes it much more suitable to using that version with the kids. They get to play Civ, you get to spend time with them, they get that experience, but they're, they're through their own experience making choices. And so from a long-range perspective, this is not a game to just play for a season. This is one that you can keep coming back to. With younger players, you start with those more focused things, learning different pieces of the mechanics. As they get old enough to juggle multiple tracks and have the the the, the developmental ability to do that balancing, right. then the game starts teaching them the need to balance, to plan, to delay gratification and put long-term goals ahead of short-term goals. And that's going to happen naturally the longer you play the game and the more that you layer in the the different aspects of it to play the full game. Yes. I thought of another way that an adult learner could learn the game. Um, Well, I don't know that it still exists. I presume it does. So years ago, after grad school, and that 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 one last time I got a whole house full of people together to play because none of us had kids, and you know most of us only barely had jobs. Um, a f- I got involved playing this and diplomacy by email, but it wasn't just email text. There was a there was a hosted server where we could. We had the map board and there were graphics and stuff and you could make your decisions and you could message the other players. As I put together show notes, I will research and if that is okay. still in existence, it will be in That the- would be, because that, that's really a good way to do it. Um, uh, just like just like people I know who use the, the Vassal modules for some of GMT's games and other board games, they use the Vassal module to either play with other people electronically or to learn how to how the game works uh, before they sit down and play with the the, the tactile pieces. Mm-hmm. So we've already talked a little bit about the keeping it within the fun zone and not and getting to you know keeping a, trying to avoid that frustration zone. Right. I think some of the ones though to recap that we had already spoken a little bit about age range that for the full game. You're probably Teenager. you're probably looking at middle graders and upward. Yeah, um, that's that's where you started to learn. I'm pretty sure that our middle graders could handle the full game all the way up. Yeah, one of their frustrations when I play it now is the littles want to play, and if the littles play, we can't play out the full game. We can't leave it set up for a week. So if you're looking at this, this is really ideal for sort of middle school on upward. If you've got younger children, you can start introducing them to aspects, but it's definitely going to get its the 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 highest return is for starting with like middle grades onward. Yes. It's going to be a lot better to work with it in that range. Um, it complements study of the ancient Mediterranean world very, very well. And so for anyone who's doing a, a history curriculum where you're spending time in the ancient world, it's going to be a very good fit for that. But the advantage is the recognizing that 
it is a long game. It's not a game that you're going to play in a single sitting most of the time. Um, you to work with that, you do what um, you did at your school, which was play a turn at a time and just set up a place with the with camera phones. You can take a photograph of the board and the state it's in. So if it gets jostled jostled yeah it's not that hard to get back to setting it back up where it was um which is something that we've done for some of our long play strategy games around here so just as a note when the game was originally released they recognized that was an issue so there's a photocopyable map that you can then if you make photocopies of it you can then mark it up as to who's in what positions so there's a record Mm-hmm. That can be referred to when you get back together to play. Uh-huh. Um, some of the some of the older, very complex games had that, and I was always delighted by that mm-hmm. as a kid. Now and, we just use the camera phone, but 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 for and and this is a strat- This is a, a something to put into place for any strategy game that's yes. got a long play time. That you know, it would be so nice if we had a dedicated game room, a room with a giant map table and lots of space around the edges and nothing else. And you could lock the door when you weren't playing in there so that it didn't get disturbed. Yeah, I'd also like a billiard room and a conservatory and some secret passages. And all of a sudden we're living in the house from Clue, which gets really, really weird. But since we don't have that game, and I assume (laughs) that 99.999% of our listeners don't either, um, using the technology we have on hand to keep track of where were we in the game makes it a lot easier to not feel committed to eight hours or more playing all in one sitting. In fact, you don't want to do that. Even with your middle graders, they're going to get hungry. They're going to get tired. And again, keeping things out of the frustration zone includes managing things like hunger, um, attention span. Now it helps to build attention span, but you're not going to have the ability to... It's not magical. It's not it magical. It takes time. It's, it's, it's a stamina thing. You have to build it. As as we saw with the, with the D&D game this weekend. Uh-huh. So what you're looking to do is start with a group of kids that are going to be in the, in the age range where developmentally they are ready for juggling the full game. So middle grades and up. Have a dedicated area for the game that you can either set aside where it's not likely to be jostled or use your camera phone to get a photo of where you're at in the game for reset up the next time you have a game session. Um, And then manage that time. Watch for things like hunger. Make sure you've got bathroom breaks and that way you don't have... And movement breaks. Um, Something I definitely do with all my D&D kids is like every half hour or so, I'm like, okay, go run around outside for a little while. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, if you're just playing 45 minutes to an hour, maybe between dinner and bed, mm-hmm. you know, you do that. Um, if you're, if you've only got a couple hours on a weekend, play through, take a break, play through a second turn and then go do your other stuff. And break then, it up so that it's manage it's manageable stress. Yes. And then the other thing is to keep in mind, there's a couple of points that are the most likely break points in the game where you're going to have frustration One of them is probably the interpersonal aspect. If you're doing that negotiation and you've got someone who's getting upset about the trades they're getting, the place where you're most likely to end up having to be referee is helping with that aspect. And that's just a, a typical aspect of coaching in general is have everyone step back and take a deep breath if the trades are getting frustrating. And that's either the point where you say, I think we need to take a break 
do some one-on-one -on -one with whoever is getting a little upset and recognize that one of, this is a great learning thing. Not everyone is always going to have exactly what you want. Right. Not everyone is always going to be a team player or want to play nicely. Well, and and they may be they may they have their own agenda and they're trying to accumulate what they consider the valuable resources and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, there's we we could go on and on and on and on. There's a whole lot that can come that can be derived from this game just from the experience of playing it. It's a reason that. Over 30 years later, I'm still playing this game. Mm -hmm. And it, but just from a keeping the game fun, be aware that that's probably the area where you're probably going to have to do the most sort of coaching and refereeing. Oh, yeah, is absolutely. Helping, is just helping keep the interpersonal things friendly and productive and keeping everyone on task. And if they can't stay on task, that's where you call break. Speaking of staying on task, have we covered the points we wanted to cover? I believe we have. Have we tortured our audience long enough? Who knows? <laughs> All right. Well, it sounds like the natives are getting restless. So regardless, I think we need to end the recording session. So if you'll go into your peroration and denouement, we can say goodbye for this week uh, and then go get on with the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. Oh, boy. <laughs> so I do think that that covers what we were looking to talk about today. It's a huge, huge topic that we could have probably gone on for another two hours if we didn't have to go off and do other things. And if you'd like to have us come and talk to you for several hours about some of the stuff, let us know. Yes, we would be happy to. It's something that we can talk about for days, if not stopped by clocks and other necessities. So we hope you enjoyed today's discussion. All of the games that we have mentioned today, not just Civ, but the ones we mentioned in passing, I will make sure are in the show notes so that you can find out more about them. And now we would love to hear from you. Absolutely. Uh, please tell us if you have played this game in the past, what was your experience with it? Are there games that you would like to hear us go about into greater depth? And if so, please write to us. You can write to us at playedpod at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at PlayEdPod. Please like and follow us. Um, we are also, uh, we do have a Facebook page at PlayEdPodcast. Please tell us your thoughts, write to us, and until next time, thanks for listening. Take care. Have a good one. Bye. We are still recording. Good. <laughs> oh yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. I realize that, but I, I like to check to make sure that something has. That's fine. I need to change the power settings. It shouldn't turn the monitor off when um, um, when it's plugged in. Mm-hmm. We'll we'll worry about that as long as we just keep an eye on it. All right. Well, yeah, I'll worry about that later. Okay. <laughs> Trinidad and the big Mississippi and the town and Honolulu, Honolulu and the Lake Titicaca. The Popa capital is not in Canada, Canada rather in Mexico, Mexico, Mexico. Canada, Malago, Rimini, Brindisi. Canada, Malago, Rimini, Brindisi. Canada, Malago, Rimini, Brindisi. Yes, Tibet, 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 Nagasaki, Yokohama, Nagasaki, Yokohama. 
Oh, what's it to do to die today at a minute or two till two? A thing distinctly hard to say, but harder still to do. To beat a tattoo at twenty till two, or rat a tattoo, and the dragon will come when he hears the drum at a minute or two till two today at a minute or two till two. I think that's a good. We're going to go through the TTTs and the bebop. Nope.